0: are going to do something strange for a Christmas series. We're going to begin in the Old Testament. We're going to go to Isaiah 53 and read about 12 verses of it. Martin Luther said, speaking of of Isaiah 53, this chapter should have been written on parchment of pure gold, studded and lettered with diamonds. It's a chapter written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And the, the five messages that we want to talk about are why we celebrate Christmas. And here's number one. It's because someone wonderful is coming. Someone wonderful is coming. We have 2,000 years of church history when the story of Christmas has defined our calendar. And defined our lives. And that's good. I have no complaints about that. But we need to put ourselves back in the place of of, uh, the early church, early Israel. uh, Well, not early Israel, but uh, Israel at the time of Christ. And we need to understand that this was a time of desperation. It was a time that though they had been regathered into their homeland from which they had been exiled then they had been regathered it was a time of of um, they they left the babylonian captivity to go into the the greek oppression to go into roman captivity and they were crying out to god for deliverance it was at the 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 headline of their daily newspaper god deliver us we sing that song oh come O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. Even though they were out of Babylon, they were still captives. And it was such a big dynamic, big part of their lives that even after over three years of ministry with Jesus, seeing miracle after miracle, hearing teaching after teaching, sermon after sermon, seeing Um, Jesus give lectures about the destruction of the temple and all of these things. Even after that, seeing him raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, what was their main question? So is now the time we're going to be delivered from Roman oppression? See, they, they, they needed something desperately. They thought what they needed was political deliverance. And they did, they did need that, but God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to deliver them from their sin, to deal with the sin problem first, because loved ones, we know this, we know it, but sometimes it gets pushed off to the side of all the problems we have, of all the things we want worked out, <coughs> excuse me, the biggest problem we have is our sin problem. That's the biggest problem. And so that led, thank you, that led to some misunderstandings. Um, And all five of the lessons are going to be reasons we celebrate Christmas. And this might not be clear to us superficially. I think when you think about it, you'd know it. But the first reason we celebrate Christmas is that somebody special was coming. Somebody was coming to break the power of sin. For this purpose, the scripture says, was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. Someone was coming who could destroy the works of the evil of the evil one. He was the only one worthy. Even when we look to the future in the book of Revelation, it was one of the primary uh, first lessons laid out to us in the book of Revelation. The, the the seven sealed book that had to do with the judgments of God and the deliverance of planet earth could not be opened. There was no one in heaven, no one under heaven, no one on the earth that was found worthy to open the book. And John said, I began to weep because I realized that everything God wanted to do for us was contained in that book. And there was no one worthy right there in the presence of God. They couldn't find an angel strong enough. They couldn't find a saint righteous enough. They couldn't find a warrior strong enough. Nobody was able to open it. And John said, I wept until the angel said, oh, John, don't weep. Don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and he is able to open the book. Man, I want to tell you, somebody wonderful is coming and that's what we need to be sure our children understand. It's what we need to be sure we understand. Let's read the first 12 verses of Isaiah 53. Now, it's written in beautiful poetic language. It's also a bit of a mystery because it doesn't make sense. You have plenty of other passages like in Zechariah and Zephaniah and other passages where Messiah is shown to be a warrior that's coming to fight Israel's battles. And that's true. That's a side of Jesus that we will see when he comes back. But this paints a picture of what is called the suffering servant. And they were not ready For the suffering servant. In fact, we're going to discover five things in this chapter today that if we're going to really grasp Christmas, we need to grasp these five things because Christmas ain't Christmas if we don't understand these five things. Let's read what Isaiah wrote Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And let me say this, this doesn't mean that Jesus was a sickly person, but in his life, he did not isolate himself from those that suffered. He was a man that understood grief and acquainted with sorrow, the King James says. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. You see, they taught that when Messiah came, he would be a mighty soldier he would, he, would, he would look like Denzel Washington or Tom Selleck. Uh, he would just be somebody that was big and strong and muscular and powerful. And everybody would want his picture on their wall. But we had no regard for him, Isaiah would say. In other words, we would look at him and say, "This, I, I, listen, go down to the drugstore and get another calendar. Even a drugstore calendar is better than this. However... It was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. See, not only did we look at him and not see anything that was interesting, we looked at what happened to him and we knew immediately that God was angry at him. There must be something sinful in his life. This does not sound like Messiah. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. He says, you are going to look at Messiah and say, He is under the curse and wrath of God. And you don't understand everything he's going through is because of our sin. All of us, Isaiah would say, like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoings of my people to whom the blow was due? He suffered for someone else's offense And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him. Doesn't sound like Messiah. The deliverer. God's pleasure was to crush him. Causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. See, we're, just, <clears throat> we're justified because of what he did for us. He will justify the many for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. Five things that we're going to talk about today that the, that the People of Jesus' day misunderstood. Five things that it's easy for us to misunderstand as well. If we don't take a step back, Christmas will become something that is generally right but profoundly wrong if we don't understand the depths of it. So let's talk about the five things they got wrong and how we can make sure we don't follow that same mistake. Number one... Someone, okay, now we said this is the topic. Someone wonderful is coming. Let's describe that someone wonderful that we're celebrating. Number one, we need to understand that to the consternation of many, Jesus was unique among mankind. See, they had the idea that Messiah, God's son, there's plenty of evidence of that in the Old Testament, but it was not understood. Do you know that the New Testament says that the prophets of old, they not only prophesied, but then they sat down and studied what they had said? I mean, it wasn't like Isaiah said, oh, pfft, I know what this means. No, he gave the word, he wrote the word down, and then he sequestered himself. Oh, spirit of God. God. What does this mean? Help me to grasp this truth. Help me to be able to wrap my arms around this. And they thought that Jesus would be a superman. They thought Messiah would be a superman. They did not understand that he would be the God man. And there was never a God-man before. There's never been a God-man since. When the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is not John saying or recording the fact that Mr. and Mrs. God kind of lamented and they only had one child and it was God that was it was not due to that kind of relationship at all when it says that he is the only begotten son it means there's never been one like him there'll never be another one like him again he was something unique and it takes faith it takes faith for us to believe the gospel. And we are in an age living in a Western culture that has highlighted intellectualism and logic and education and and scholasticism and scholarship. And we put great stock into that. We tell all of our children to go to school, get as many degrees as you can, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we are trying to take something that is received by faith and make it logical. You know what it's like to go buy a car and you buy the super duper deluxe edition. You've worked hard all your life and you can afford car payments like this you know, plus the fact that they now give you 96 months makes it a little easier yeah. to pay for it. But you get the super-duper edition, and the person tells you, well, at the uh, Tesla laboratories, they goes back to the law of relativity, which Einstein said, and then we 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 did all that wrapping it in silver lining. Da, 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 da. And you look at them and you say, What button do I push? What what button do I push to turn it on? You and I know we don't have to understand the scientific intricacies of something to reap the benefits of it. And that's the way faith works. We study to show ourselves approved unto God and hopefully we'll understand more and more and more and more and more, but you will never learn enough about God. You'll never learn enough theology. You and I will never learn enough about the Bible that it will ever become a thing of logic to us. It will always be a thing of faith. That doesn't mean it's illogical. It transcends logic. That doesn't mean it can't be known, but it does mean that God is so good that we don't have to know everything in order to be brought in to the family and receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus, as far as the world was concerned, was something weak. We looked at him, Isaiah said, and there was no beauty that we desired. But the scripture says that this thing that was weak was actually watched over. It was protected by the hand of God. And loved ones, let me say this. The virgin birth was a truly supernatural event. It's spoken about in Isaiah 14 where it says a young woman shall bear a child, but the context of it as well as the interpretation and usage of it in the Gospel of Matthew make it clear that, uh, that this, the expectation was that he would be born of a virgin. That's what the New Testament says. Isaiah 9 says unto us a child is born unto us, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Eternal God, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government there will be no end. This is an eternal person with an eternal pedigree. This is the Messiah that is coming, and he's not just a superman, he is God-man. Never minimize the virgin birth. Because the virgin birth provides a framework for his uh, sinlessness. Let me tell you, one of the greatest minds that I've ever read, I mean, well, I shouldn't say you can't judge a person's mind, but scholarly, one of the greatest minds that I've ever read, a, a, a man renowned for his scholasticism in the New Testament, he says, I don't know if Jesus was born of a virgin or not. He says, I don't know if his miracles were real or not. All I know is that I love Jesus and he's the best man that the human race has ever produced. And I, I want to scream out that that, that, view, that view is responsible for making us admirers of Jesus instead of worshipers of Jesus. And a lot of people are admirers of Jesus. But not many people are worshipers of Jesus. And he is to be worshiped because, among other things, he is fully God, fully man. God who came in the flesh, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, was raised literally from the dead by the hand of the Father ascended to heaven where he ever lives to make intercession. This is fundamental to our faith, not founda—I mean, uh, not incidental. It's fundamental. He is the only begotten. Listen to what Adrian Rogers said. He was not half man and half God. He was not all man and no God. He was not all God and no man. He was as much God as he was man. God couldn't have, uh, He couldn't have been more God if he wasn't man, and he couldn't have been more man if he weren't God. You say, I don't understand that. Welcome to the human race. They were looking, as I said, for a superman, but a, a superman was not enough. You say, well, if we could just get a perfect man. We had one. His name was Adam. And he failed miserably. He brought uh, a curse upon the earth. He and his wife, because of their rebellion, because of their insistence on going their own way, that's that's the reason for the mess that we're in. We needed more than a perfect man. We needed God-man. And Jesus came fully God and became fully man, born of a virgin... And then only then was he able to deal with this thing that we call the fall. I mentioned Adrian Rogers and I read one time when he was, where he was witnessing to Muhammad Ali and the Muhammad Ali answered one of his points. And he said this, you said Jesus was God because he was born of a virgin uh, and, and he had no human father. Well, Adam had no human father or human mother. So wouldn't that make Adam more God than Jesus? And Adrian Rogers looked at him and said, Champ, you don't understand. Jesus wasn't God because he was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin because he was God. We get the cart before the horse. And the first thing that they missed at the birth of Jesus is the same thing we can miss today. Jesus is not the best man who ever lived. Well, that's sort of true. He is the best man who ever lived. Oh, every one of us would be thrilled if our daughters married somebody like Jesus. Every one of us would be thrilled if our sons turned out to be like Jesus. My wife would be ecstatic if I could just be more like Jesus. I understand that, but we need to understand that it took more than the human mind can imagine. It took God becoming not only fully God, but fully man and living the life that we were intended to live all along, paying the price for our failure and receiving the gift of eternal life. So the first mistake is that instead of someone that was just the best they could be like us, Jesus was unique, the only begotten son of God. Here's a second mistake that they made. They looked for Messiah to come as a mighty warrior. And there are times that Messiah will be a mighty warrior. But Jesus in his first coming presented himself in humility. He presented himself in humility. Now, we think of when we think of humility, we think of weakness. You know, uh, uh, we even have a word that carries such negative connotation, meekness. But we've got to remember that meekness is not weakness. Remember Moses, it was said that Moses was the meekest man on all the earth. You say, well, that must have meant he 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 was weak. Moses is a guy that sent people to hell with their clothes on. I mean, no, he, he, he was, there's never a moment in, Mo, in Moses' life where he appears to be weak. Even before he met God in the wilderness, he was a mighty man of renown. But he was not a weak man. Even Jesus said, uh, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give rest to you. "'You'll find rest for your souls.'" Why? "'Because I am meek and lowly of heart.'" Do, do, do we find rest for our souls because Jesus is weak? No, we find rest for our souls because Jesus is meek and meekness means strength under control. See, meek is, a, is actually, meekness and humility is actually a sign of great strength. A person that is humble does not find the need to have to prove themselves in every situation. They're able to be treated wrong because they know who they are. They're never in these ego battles or these spitting contests to to prove their worth. They know they are strong, but it is under control. In fact, uh, there was a, a race of ancient warriors that were known to be united with their horses And they didn't even hold the reins when they went into battle. They had a a shield in one hand and a sword or a spear in the other hand. Some of them had bows, which would require both hands. They could not hold to the reins of their horses. But their enemies said it was like they were supernatural. The horses seemed to be able to read their minds and know what they needed to do. Did they need to go forward? Did they need to go back? Did they need to pursue? Did they need to move around? In fact, it was observed, this is, is not just a legend, although I'm sure legend grew out of it. There were even incidents of the men when they were fighting, the horses would stand over burning ground until they were commanded to move on. And it, it was a phenomenal thing. And what this was about is that the horses were trained to obey the slightest touch of the heels of their master. The, this punch of the heels meant this, the touch of the toes meant that, a lifting of the leg meant that, an extension of the leg meant something else. And they were able to control those horses, commanding them to move or be still, to hold steady, to pursue. They could command them to do anything by the slightest movement. Their enemies, it took them generations to figure out what was going on. And when a horse was trained that way, the horse was said to be meek. M-E-E-K-E-D, meat. The horse had come to a point of training where he did not have to be like a horse or mule that had to be jerked around and poked in the ribs to do something. It It was the slightest touch of the master. And Jesus says, that's the way I am with my father. I only do what the father tells me to do. I only say what father gives me to say. And you can have rest for your souls because I'm attentive to the father. Messiah came to set us free because he had such a sensitivity to the father that he did nothing but the will of the father. You see, Jesus came in humility because he was a man of sorrows. He was a with grief, He was a product of Nazareth. I want to tell you, this is maybe shocking, but Jesus probably didn't even stand out in a crowd. You remember when they came to arrest him, that was at the height of his popular uh, and, and cultural uh, uh, knowledge of him. And Judas had to pick him out for those that wanted to arrest him by giving him a kiss. He had to be picked out. He had to be pointed out in a crowd. Now, this is something that they did not understand. And when you read the gospels, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We would think that people would respond to miracles and say, this is Messiah. And some people did. But Jesus did not put all of his eggs in the basket of miracles. In fact, some miracles, he said, don't tell anybody about this. Because let me tell you, there are two very special things in the Gospels that we generally misunderstood. Number one is parables, and number two is miracles. And we say, well, boy, everybody should understand that parable, and everybody should respond to a miracle. But people heard the audible voice of God and said it was thunder. There were people that saw miracles and then started following him for the miracles, There were people that saw his provision and said, I don't have to work another day in my life. I'll just follow the trail of Jesus and he'll give me bread and fish. Let me tell you this about miracles and about parables. They were designed to show what was in a person's heart. There were those that Jesus said, when you hear the parables, you won't understand it because your heart is darkened. I don't believe there was this divine choosing where God said, you can understand the parable and you can't understand the parable. No, I believe parables produced what was in someone's heart. Miracles produce what's in someone's heart. And if a person doesn't understand the parables, it's because they're committed to darkness. If a person responds wrongly to miracles or doesn't respond rightly to miracles, it's because they're evil in their heart. God brings those high moments and God brings those lofty moments to expose what is in our lives and to give us an opportunity to repent. It would have been easier, (coughs) and it is what they look for For. Jesus to just walk into town and throw lightning bolts out of his hands and to cure everybody's financial ills and make every business prosperous. That's what we try to do today. But Jesus said, I am going to walk down a path that will give you a chance to respond in faith. Some of you will respond to miracles, some of you won't. Some of you will respond to parables, some of you won't. But I am not going to put on a carnival show to try to amaze the masses. Whatever I do or don't do, it will dig into the deep part of your life. And it will produce faith or it will produce unbelief. They weren't looking for somebody like that. They were looking for somebody that came. You guys with me? They were looking for somebody with such a show that nobody could say no. But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, Jesus said, I am going to walk in humility. I'm not going to be the kind of person that you would naturally be drawn to. Uh, I'm not going to be the type A personality that people can't resist. I will be a person that is strength under control. I will only say what Father tells me to say. I will only go where Father tells me to go. I will go out of my way through through." uh, to Sychar and the Samaritans if that's what Father wants but I am going to present a path that anybody can follow me but it has to be by faith. Every time I look on a congregation I know that I'm dealing with people that God has been so incredibly good. You think nobody else has the faith you do. Because your life has been just so charmed. And I don't, I don't begrudge that. I'm thankful that God has been so good to you. But I look in that same congregation and I see people that have seen the life ripped out of them. Indescribable losses. And they are following that path, not because God gave them everything they wanted, but because they believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Oh, some of them missed it because they were looking for a Superman instead of a God Man. Some of them missed it because they were looking for a showman. But there was the Messiah that presented Himself in weakness. Let's go to number three. Um, I got away from my notes. Let me find where I'm at. Here we are. Number three. Is that right? Number three. Yes. The third thing that they did not understand is that Jesus came to die in my place and in your place. He came to die for me. He came to die for you. You see, Paul in describing the gospel said, you know what the Romans and Greeks, how they view the gospel? They, they think it's foolishness because in the Greek And Roman pantheon of gods, the gods fight and struggle and the strongest gods may kill other gods, but they win every battle. The thought of a god letting evil overcome him, that is absolute foolishness. To the Jews, he said, it's a stumbling block because they cannot conceive of God becoming weak. They cannot conceive of God becoming man. They cannot conceive of the righteous falling prey to the unrighteous, much less God being nailed on a cross by wicked humans. And only by the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, Jesus said this in John, only by the revelation of the Holy Spirit can we understand that Jesus died for me. He died in my place. A leading talk show host a couple of decades ago went to a service and they were singing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I'm happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I had done He hung upon the tree and it was an amazing thing. And the bottom line talked about the wonder of God who would die for such a worm as I. Such a worm as I. And this talk show host said, I would never serve a God that thought I was a worm. I am a person of dignity. I'm a person of value. I am no worm. And I sat there and I thought, you don't understand. You're you're not a worm. You're lower than a worm. We, and we all are. We're not worms. We're worm dung. And, and, and if dung dungs, then it's worms dung dung. We are, we are so low. We are so lost. See, we believe in total depravity, not like our Calvinist friends do. We don't believe that there's no good in us, but we believe that even the good in us is hopelessly inadequate to get us right in the sight of God. It's as though To be righteous, I have to jump to the moon. And loved ones, I may start in the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, or I may jump from the top of Mount Everest, you know, or the highest point on earth. But whether I jump from down there or I jump from down here, I'm not getting anywhere near the moon. That's what total depravity means. Total depravity doesn't mean I'm as bad as I can be. The worst among us do some good things. it doesn't mean I'm as bad as I can be. It means I'm as bad off as I can be. I have nothing to merit the mercy of God. So I need to understand that Jesus came to die in my place. They thought he was wounded because he was bad, but it turns out he was wounded because we are bad. Isaiah would also say this, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. When Jesus died on the cross, he took at least four things for us. You remember when he was in the garden and he prayed and he said, Father, if there's any other way. Any other way, please let it be. Let this cup pass from me. Let me tell you what was in that cup. Um, The the spiritual cup he had to drink was the cup of our sin. You remember when he told Abraham that your children are going to be in bondage in Egypt for 400 years because the land I've given to them is not ready to be occupied. He said, I am trying to reach the Amorites And the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What he was saying, is this going to be 400 years before the last group that I'm going to judge has reached the point of no return? Boy, talk about the mercy of God. You know, people say, oh, it wasn't fair for God to drive those people out and bring Israel in. God tried to save every one of those nations. He made his people labor in servitude for 400 years, giving the Amorites every possible chance to get right. No, they were driven out as the judgment of God. But there was that cup of iniquity. And he said, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. It was the cup of iniquity. And every sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl who had lived, was living then, living now, ever will live. All of that sin was poured into that cup. And he had to drink it. Now you think about that. When a child is molested, that goes in the cup. When a woman is raped, that goes in the cup. When, so, when injustice occurs, that goes in the cup. And Jesus had to drink that cup <coughs> through his death on the cross. He endured it for us. And Jesus endured the full wrath of God. I know I've said this before, but you say, oh, he didn't. You know, i said before, Jesus went to hell on the cross for every man, woman, boy, and girl who ever lived. He went to hell and endured an eternity of hell for us on the cross. You say, how could that be? He was only on the cross for a few hours. Well, remember he was fully God and he was fully man, a mystery that we can't understand, but we can piece this together. (coughs) As a man, he was on the cross for a few hours and he suffered for a few hours because he was finite man. He could only suffer so much for so long, but it wasn't just finite man on that cross. It was infinite God on the cross who is not bound by our dimensions, not bound by our time. And I want to tell you that Friday on the cross to the mind of man that was just a few hours in the mind of God was an eternity in hell for every one of us. So he took my sins He took your sins, but he also took my shame. Caiaphas and Pilate. Pilate said, you better answer me. I can set you free. I have the power of life and death over you. Caiaphas said, well, if he's, you know, on the cross, he said, if he was really God, he saved others. Let him save himself. They were marveling that Jesus said nothing. He was like a a lamb before the shearers, before its slaughter. He said nothing. And Jesus took the shame of guilt. Do you know if it had been me and I was falsely accused, I'll tell you what I'd have probably said. I'd have said, mama, listen to me. I didn't do this. I want my kids to know, I want my grandkids to know I am an innocent man. I did not do this. I swear before God, I did not do this. You know, to show I'm innocent, no grass will grow on my grave for seven years. You know, I would have done anything to spare the shame of the moment. But he didn't answer the accusations. Why? Because it wasn't directed toward his sin. It was directed toward my sin. It was directed toward your sin. And you know what? The reason he didn't say anything, it's because I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I, I would have died in shame because I have sinned. I have failed God. I failed man. I failed my family. I am guilty. But Jesus said, I will take that shame along with your sin. And he took something else, loved ones. He took my separation. Isaiah says he was cut off. He was separated from God probably quoting Psalm 22, but he wasn't looking back to quote David. He was looking, David was looking ahead at what was going to happen to Jesus. There are a lot of folks, a lot of theologians that say, well, I'm just not sure God separated himself from Jesus because after all, God said, I'll never leave you forsake you. Why would he forsake himself from Jesus? Because Jesus took my sin. My sin is why Jesus was separated from the Father. Jesus didn't misunderstand. Jesus wasn't saying, boy, it feels like God doesn't even care. God turned his back. That's what hell is. It's the absence of God. It's God turning himself away from those that have turned away from him. Jesus felt hell on the cross so I wouldn't have to feel hell. And then he took my suffering. He took my suffering. This is such a mysterious thing. You know, every Easter, well, not every Easter, but periodically for four or five Easter's at one time or another, I'll, I'll mention, you know, who is responsible for the death of the Lord? Some scriptures make it sound like it was the Romans. Some scriptures make it sound like it was the Jews. Some scriptures make it sound like it was the crowd. Some scriptures make it sound like it was Judas. And there's five or six possibilities that all carry some blame. Um, and, and, And the final possibility is I crucified Jesus. My sins put him on the cross. But what really blows people's minds is the last on that list. And it is God put Jesus on the cross. It pleased him to crush his son. Now that's not because he is capricious it's not because he has mood swings or he's you know uh has some some sort of psychotic break where he loves one minute and hates the next it's a matter of justice and righteousness god god it says was pleased to crush him not because god wanted to crush his son but because he knew by crushing his son he was crushing our sin by crushing his son he was crushing damnation By crushing his son, he was opening a door for us to go to heaven. Now, let's begin to wrap this up. You're doing great. You're doing great. I just need you to pick up the pace. (laughs) Jesus was unique among mankind. They missed him because he was not what they thought he would be. He, number two, Jesus presented himself in humility, not in power. Number three, Jesus came to die. And not only did he come to die, but he came to die in my place and in their place. Number four, Jesus came to bear my grief. And and, um, it's interesting where it talks about the death that he bore. It's a plural intensive death. And the writer Isaiah was saying, look, he suffered death for us all. Every one of us were deserving of death, but Jesus paid the price. It wasn't just one death. It was a It was a a cumulative effect. And then number five, Jesus came to fully establish the kingdom of heaven. He came to fully establish the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is what we've got to understand. Everything is not set right yet. But everything that needed to be done to start the process began at Christmas and continued through his life continued through his death. We need to understand that he is in control. We need to understand that he is working in more ways than we can imagine. We need to understand that he is coming again. We need to pray. When we pray for the lost, we need to pray this way. But I tell you, my heart today, when I told you about, you know, this woman saying my daddy would not only wanted to be sure we knew the way, he wanted to be sure we got there. I think we need to do that for our children. Let me tell you three ways to pray for your children. It's not really part of the sermon, but it's just on my heart. We need to pray. And I don't mean go home and th- throw out Olaf, you know, or get rid of Frosty the Snowman. Most of us, all we need to do is a tweak, just a tweak. We're, we're not, we're not, we haven't gone apostate the way we celebrate Christmas but we do need to tweak and we need to be sure that beginning at Christmas and then reinforcing it, we need to be sure that our children understand Jesus came because we needed a savior. We were in need of a savior. We need to help our children understand that all of our sin is paid for sufficiently by Jesus, sufficiency of Jesus. And, In a culture that that will fight it to its dying breath, we need to teach them the exclusivity of Jesus. We need to teach them that Jesus isn't one God among many. We need to teach them that Christianity isn't one path to heaven among many. We need them to understand this baby came because I needed a savior and he is sufficient for all of my sins Everything that's broken in me, he can fix. He's the propitiation. We learned that in in, uh, evangelism explosion. He is the the propitiation, the, the complete payment, fully paid for our sins. And there's nobody else that can do that. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can do that. Now, what do we do, Pastor? What do we do? Are you, are you putting a, a bummer? Are you telling me I'm celebrating Christmas wrong? Oh goodness, no! And and I and I, want, I want to t- I, and I know your heart's in the right place, but I just want to encourage all that think every, everything's wrong with Christmas. Everything's pagan with Christmas. Got the wrong date. Got this wrong. Got that wrong. Got the other wrong. Just just chill. <laughs> just chill. Uh, I, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dishonoring you for, for wanting to be right. I'm, I'm really not. But you, some of us have just turned into that thing we never want to be. And that is just a mean person. And, and I, I want somebody gave a prophecy one time. I don't think it was a real prophecy. But it just sounded so good, I want to repeat it. <laughs> it just said, leave Santa Claus alone. He's a good man and he's doing a good work. Just leave Santa Claus alone. I don't think that was a real prophecy, but until we have a real prophecy to give, that one will hold us over. (laughs) Loved ones, this is important. I do not want you to go and destroy Christmas. That's not what this is about. Um, um, You know, somebody said, well, I just, I think Christmas has become so commercialized. Well, it, it has. Of course, if we keep having bad economies, that may not be the case for long. But how many, how many times a year are you able to walk through a department store and hear the background music singing the words of the gospel? We need to be careful which fights we pick. And if you disagree with me, I understand. You can email me at justin at dot e- uh, No. I'm teasing. I'm only saying this because I don't want you to understand. We're not on a crusade against Christmas. We're not on a crusade against gifts. All I'm saying is that the most wonderful time of the year, and that's the name of this series. That's what we're embracing. The most wonderful time of the year. It is so much richer and better than the story even tells So we start today with someone wonderful is coming. That's who we're celebrating. Someone that was fully God and fully man who came in humility and gave us the opportunity to respond He died, as a result, his birth ultimately led to Easter where he died and was resurrected for our sins. This is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Someone wonderful is coming. And and, and, and Santa's not the wonderful one. He's pretty good. I'll take him. There really was a Saint Nick. And I, I think you'd do your family a favor by learning the story about Saint Nicholas and telling them that story. You say, well, I don't, I don't want to get out of balance. Well, then just bring me a present and that'll, that'll bring balance back to the universe. I mean, you, you guys know I'm teasing. But I want to tell you, I, I, want, I want my perspective on Christmas to be, oh, it's all of this. The goose is on the table and all, all of that is wonderful. I love the gifts. I love the singing. I love the feasting. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But at the heart of it, someone that I desperately needed was born and dealt with my sin. Christmas is not all about giving. Christmas is about receiving but it's the receiving of the Savior, the receiving of eternal life, the receiving of Emmanuel, God with us. Father, in Jesus' name, as we wrap up today, we ask you to help us. Lord, I want this, I'm I'm asking for this to be the best Christmas we've ever had. And And I believe it can be, if we don't measure it by gifts or whatever. And and again, nothing wrong with those things. But Lord, some of us for the first time are going to realize everything I have in the spirit, every time I speak in tongues, every time I feel the joy of the Lord, every time I read my Bible, it was made possible because somebody wonderful came. And God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. For those of us that have accepted you, help us to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. If there are any that have not accepted you as Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help them today to make that most important decision in Christ's name.